Latasha Morrison is with us this morning. She is on in the middle of her book tour right now um, for her book that just came out called Be the Bridge. This is the, some of the culmination of the work she's been doing for years and years and years. There's nobody better. Uh, we were together Friday night, and I, I said this, and I meant it. She is anointed for this work in a very, very special way. This is specialized leadership uh, that requires somebody of the strength and the character and the conviction of Tasha. And so I said, how long are you staying? Are you free Sunday morning? And so she is here to teach this morning. We have so much to learn from her, um, and we're, we're really lucky um, to sit under her leadership this morning. I do also want to say, if you're interested in a shirt of hers, that will get you at least a couple of interesting conversations at HEB, okay? <laughs> just, I've heard. Um, she'll, these will be in the lobby afterwards, so... <laughs> Thank you for being here with us this morning. We are the lucky ones. So please help me welcome Latasha Morrison. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I know Jen was like, yeah, she exploited our friendship now. It's great to be here. I love Austin. You know, Austin is like my um, second home, and so I'm grateful. I do have to let you know, I don't want you guys to be disappointed that um, they're only about the size large in that shirt left. They've been selling out, okay? So you guys can cut them and, like, cut them in time. You know how those ladies do, so. <laughs> so, um, it's great to be here, and one of the things I want to start off, let me make sure, you know how when you're talking and your screen goes, you know, away, yeah, that's like the, the worst thing ever, so I want to make sure that that doesn't happen while I'm talking this time. So, um, one of the things I want to acknowledge, you guys have been in a really awesome but tough um, series, and this work um, when we think about the process of reconciliation and what it takes, this is why we have not continued on this learning journey of reconciliation because it cost. Um, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, it's hard. And it's like an unraveling when we start really um, having to deconstruct our belief systems, our value systems. Sometimes at the end of this, we don't survive, we like lose hope, you know? And so it's important, you know, in the process of this, we, you know, we, we hear all these hard and difficult things talking about colonialism, evangelism, you know, talking about racism and nationalism and all these things, sexism. Um, you're kind of like, what do I do? And sometimes it paralyzes us to the point where we don't do anything. We can begin to desensitize ourselves to the, to the feeling and to the pain because we don't want to feel it because it's too painful. And so one of the things we, that I think, you know, just from having a theology of lament and what that means, and it's kind of like, this is what you do. With all of that you've taken in this summer, with all the, the tough um, questions that you may have, you know, we have to lament and take them to God. Lament centers God. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I couldn't start this message on lament without recognizing um, just some of the first atrocities 
that our nation committed against our native and indigenous community here. And we want to acknowledge this land of the Tonkawa and also the Comanche tribes that um, dwelt this land that we are on now here in Austin and through Oklahoma and Texas. Um, we have to lament that. And we don't talk about that. Um, and even reading about these tribes, there's, there's this app called Native Land. And so if you, if you wanted to download that, it tells you anywhere you are, it'll tell you the nation, the tribal nation that was present in that city, in that state. And one of the things when I was reading about this one particular tribe, the Tonkawa, it was like they, there's only 718 enrolled in their tribe. And then for the Comanche, it's like 17,000. And I was like, we, wa we wiped out millions of languages and cultures and just tribes of people, image bearers. And that's something that we must lament, that we have to name it. And so lamenting, a part of lamenting is also naming it. And then also this year, there's so much happening this year. And just with this series that you guys um, just completed, um, this is the 400-year anniversary, no, I don't want to say, it sounds like anniversary is like it's a celebration, but well, let's say recognition, remembrance of, in 1619, the first African slaves stepped foot in Jamestown. And so that is something that we lament. And I know for me, this is something I did not learn in school. And if you, and I know that you guys in Texas, I know you did not learn it either. So... <laughs> There's a, we got to talk about y'all history, just the whole entire history. Like, Texas is doing its own thing, you know. But um, it's important that we, we teach this next generation, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But one of the things for me, the impact of um, just studying the whole 1619, the um, New York Times um, created a learning guide, and they have a podcast that's going on with this. And this is because I'm learning, too, as you're learning. And, um, and learning this, I just really started thinking about this, this past year, um, even how I look at the institution of slavery. I'm like, um, I am a survivor. My ancestry, when I trace my ancestry, my ancestry goes back to Benin and Togo and Cameroon. Um, I am like 93% African, okay? And so when I trace my history, um, when I, when I trace that, I remember, you know, it had me dwell on the fact that um, I am a survivor. Someone survived the Atlantic slave trade where millions perished. I'm a product of that. You know, I'm a product of someone that survived 240 years. An ancestor of mine survived 240 years of slavery in this country. I'm a product of that. So I stand before you today as a survivor of the Atlantic slave trade, of slavery, of reconstruction, of the civil rights movement, of Jim Crow, all of this to be here today. And that is something that I am proud of. And so when I think about this, I'm like, I am the hope of the answers. There was someone that was praying on that ship. There was someone that was praying as a slave for me to be here today before you. And that is something that um, I celebrate to be able to deliver this message um, to you today. Um, Henry Norton said, it is not always about saying the right thing or doing the right thing, but simply being present can mean the world to someone. And when we talk about lament, 
It's being present with God. It's being present with others to sit in, to sit with someone in sorrow. Um, being present means listening to the hurt without correcting or presenting data to give hope. And we love to do that. You know, someone's talking about how they're going through and you're like, but I hope is in the Lord, right? You know, and I know in my faith, you know, as it relates to the traditions of the black church, you know, we're always about hope and faith and joy cometh in the morning, but there's an understanding, a deep understanding of lament and sorrow because of the history. And you can have joy and you can have lament at the same time. You can have joy, you can have justice, you can have faith and you can have lament at the same time, understanding that and marrying those two. And so, so many times we want to jump to hope without the process that brings true hope. True hope comes from balancing lament and praise. Without proper space to process and mourn, the true process, progress cannot be made. So today I'm asking you to sit with me in lament, to listen, to love, and then we can learn how we must leverage ourselves in this work to bring about change. Lamentations 1 and 2 highlights the suffering, well, all of our Lamentations highlights the suffering, of Israel's divided kingdom that is in exile. And in chapter 2, I just want to bring this part to my, your attention when we hear, um, it's credited to the prophet Jeremiah, um, and I, he's also known as the weeping prophet. And so he lived through this period of Israel's freedom and also their captivity. And so the things that he's seeing, um, you hear that the anguish and the desolation, that the experience that, um, that, that Israel is experiencing. And this is brought on by their disobedience, okay? And so also I want us to remember as we're relating to Scripture, um, we, in this story, we are not... Israel, okay? We are the empire, which are the Babylonians, the Assyrians, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, th that's who we are. And so a lot of times as we're um, reading through scripture, we want to partner, latch on to the ones that are being oppressed. And that's how we interpret it. We are the oppressors, okay? America is an empire, not the kingdom of God, okay? So just throw the, the one to make sure we understand that. And so as he says in chapter 2, it says, My eyes are worn out for weeping. My stomach is churning. My insides are poured out on the ground because the daughter of my people is shattered, because children and babies are fainting in the city streets. This is his anguish. This is his, his concern. He's pouring his heart out and his, this lamentation. Um, what is lament? Lament means to express sorrow and regret. And so we see the different ones like, in, in this, you're talking about um, this was brought on through the doings of Israel. But then in Job, that was something that was not a part of his doing. His lament was not a part of his doing. And so we have different incidents here. Um, lamenting something hor horrific that has taken place allows a deep connection to form between the person lamenting and the harm that was done. And the emotional connection is, first, is the first step and creating a pathway for healing and hope. We have to sit in the sorrow and try to avoid trying to fix it right away. Avoid our attempts to make it all okay. 
Only then is the pain useful. Only then can, le- can this lead us into healing and wisdom. Um, this summer, we took a group of people to Rwanda. Rwanda has this um, Truth and Reconciliation Council. And I, thought, I think it's important where you look at countries who are doing the work of truth and reconciliation and what that looks like and what that means. Um, and Rwanda is one of those countries, if we know anything about the history of Rwanda, Rwanda was colonized um, by the Dutch. And so through that, anytime you're talking about conquering, colonization, it was about divide and conquer. So if I can turn you against each other, I can rule you. And we see that happening in any type of war situation. We see that happen even in our own country. Okay, and so um, when we when we're t- with Rwanda, um, this led to tribalization. So Rwanda was different because there was yes, there were wars in uh, in Africa, there was tension, but that's because we're very tribal people, and so a lot of that tension came from people were different cultures. Sound familiar, right? Okay, um, it came from different languages because they couldn't understand each other. And if they had different languages, that caused tension if they were um, sharing land. Um, and so in Rwanda, it was different because the people, the tribes that were in this area of Burundi and Rwanda, um, they spoke the same language. Okay, they had a lot of the same cultural norms and, and they also shared a king. So Rwanda was really Wakanda, you know? And so it was like, you know, like that was true, you know. Um, they, had, they shared a king, but they were different tribes. And so when you look at this, um, Rwanda celebrates, um, they, they commemorate um, 100 days of mourning from April until like um, June. And this is the same period of time that genocide took place, the genocide of the Tutsis. This is what they call it. They say the genocide of the Tutsis because they don't want, as time goes, for people just to say genocide and get confused on who, were, who was harmed during the genocide. Kind of like we do in our history. We, tur- we shift that thing and turn it, and it's like the South became the oppressed. You know what I'm saying? It's like, wh- what about the people that were oppressed, you know? And so um, we, we, sh- we shift history. And so because of that, they, they want to make sure that they are lamenting this every year. They teach it to their children. They write it on their doorposts so that the next generation will know the faithfulness of God and what God has done in their country as they have rebuilt their country. And so I think this is important. And so one of the foundations of their commemorating is to know that this lament is grounded in truth. And so lament is grounded in truth. And we have to remember that the reconciliation process begins with truth in Rwanda. Truth creates unity and solidarity. And so we have to make sure that we are doing that same thing here. And so that was one of the things we had an opportunity to witness, all the policies that they put in place, all of the... um, the, the things that they are no longer Tutsis and Hutus in Rwanda, they are now all Rwandans. And they got rid of that classification and structure because it was abused and it was misused and it was used to divide and conquer um, within their country. 
Um, Rwanda even created new language around their vision of unity. Umbamuntu, which means greatness of heart, means humanity, goodness, generosity, kindness. Those who don't stand in complicity with, in the face of injustice, but those who risk their lives to rescue or help those who are persecuted. So that's new language they are bringing, making sure that we don't want to stand in silence when tragedy is happening around us. So they're creating language of that. And one, of the, um, one theologian from Africa, and I think it's important that we all often read um, books and, and, and liturgy from people who are not from our Western culture to tradition. And so in the, he says, in the midst of devastation, God is always showing us signs of hope. We Christians need to learn to look even in the midst of devastation for the signs and seeds of hope that God is planting, even through tragedy. Um, in 2 Samuel, um, we see this in, in the story of Nathan and David. And there's this, like, funny part in here. We know um, David was king, and we know he, was, um, he disobeyed God, and he wanted the wife of someone else. And he sends this man off into battle, puts him on the front line. The man's, I mean, the Bible is scandalous. You know, takes the man's wife, you know, and, um, and then he basically, she becomes pregnant. And so here, Nathan is calling him out. And this is the thing, we, we, sometimes we love to be um, self, very self-righteous in, 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 in this sense. And so Nathan says to David, he said, he gives him the, this example of something that's happening. And this is David's response. He said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He said to him and said to him, there are two men in a certain city, one, um, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it, he bought it up, he brought it up and he grew it up with his, with him and his children. It, he, he used, um, it used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich, um, this rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests he had to come. But he took the poor man's lamb, his only lamb that was like a daughter to him, and he prepared it, and the man, and um, he prepared it, and then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan says to David, you are the man. It was you. You did it, you know. But just really, and that's what we do. A lot of times when we think about the things that are happening across this world, we can point and look at the reconciliation process that's happening in um, Rwanda or in South Africa and all these other countries. Um, but we don't see our part in it. You know, um, we can look at what's happening at the border, um, but don't understand that we had fault and what's happening at the border, why the people are fleeing their countries. And we do this time and time again, and we're doing it now, and eventually what's happening with the Kurds will come back to bite us. And most, because we don't teach it, nobody knows the history, it'll get erased, and we don't understand, why do they hate us? And if we look, 
throughout the Middle East, the damage that we have brought there. I just wanted to throw that out there and just so that we understand this happens. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David owned this truth. And so you can't, you can't lament honestly if it's not founded in truth. So David owned his sin. Um, Dave, David, therefore, he sought the Lord. Um, he just so that just praying that God would change his mind because Nathan also delivered the message that you're not going to die, but the child that you've conceived with Bathsheba will die. And so David lamented not only his sin, but also he's causing the death. His sin has caused the death of his son. And so he laments and he fasts and he prays and um, just to beckon God to change his mind and to move on his behalf despite his sin. But the child dies. And so you have this, this sorrow, this great sorrow. But in the verse, verses to follow that, we see David is comforted by his wife. Um, they then have Solomon. And so even in the midst of sorrow, tragedy, and sin, there's this hope of his seed um, through Solomon that comes. Um, you see, lament leads us to hope. Lament leads us to hope in the, in not in light of easy and transformation of suffering. There was great suffering before the hope. Lament is work. Lament is that deep engagement with God when things are not going right. Um, lament centers God and decenters self. In the lament, we focus solely on God to intervene, to change, to heal, to comfort, to restore, to redeem. Lament is a reminder of God's faithfulness. In Lamentations 3, we see, and I read Lamentations 2 earlier, but in Lamentations 3, in the midst of these chapters in Lamentations, you just hear about, I mean, just anguish and just all the things that's happening to the children of Israel. But then squeezed in between chapters 3, you see this little glimmer of hope. And we sing this a lot in church, and we say this. And the header of this, this chapter in 3 is called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. So even in the midst of anguish, even in the midst of suffering, our lament is, God, you're still faithful. You can still change us. You can still restore. You can still redeem. You can still comfort. In the midst of our pain and our sorrow that we're hearing about, you know, our country and our history and about ourselves, God, you can still redeem your people. You can still change my heart. And so that's what we see in Lamentation that says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. And I tell you, it's the faithfulness of God, I think, that sustains you, especially in the things that we're seeing, that reminds you, that God is still at work when you don't see God at work. When you don't feel God at work, God is still at work. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then it says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but through the cause of grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And I think those of us that's in this work of racial injustice, that is the hope that we have when we see no hope, is we have hope that God will restore, that God will redeem, that he will make things right so that all may flourish. You see, we are reminded of who we are and whose we are through our salvation history. Um, Christ's sacrifice on Calvary connects us to the family of God, connects us eternally to one another. Um, our Christian faith is embodied um, in various communal acts and common prayer and communion and baptism. We are reminded that all of our stories are wrapped and intertwined together. They are God's stories. Not only do we share foundational memories and practices of faith, but we share and understand our personal and ethnic histories. To participate in the family of God alongside um, non-white people, the majority culture must acknowledge the pr perspectives of people of color and must understand the truth of historical narratives. We have to partner with and listen and not tell people of color what to say and how to say it. Without the truth of racial justice, which calls us to confession and repentance, without it, there will be continued dissonance in our relationships with one another as the body of Christ. Jesus can make beauty from ashes, but we must first recognize and acknowledge those ashes. We must understand and educate and teach the generations about our shared past, beginning with a common memory of atrocities committed against people of color in this country. If we are to be reconciled to one another, we must begin with the full truth and recognize all the parts of the stories. And so as you've gone through this series this summer, you've heard some hard things and how these things have intertwined itself not just into our nation, the foundation of our nation, but our ideologies, our belief systems, our values, but also into our theology. And the untangling of that is very painful. And so those are the things that we must lament. And there are historical things that we have to name and lament in our country. And one of those things that I want us to do now, I just want to give us a, a brief history lesson in here. And so we're talking about the lynching era. And we have um, in Montgomery, Brian Stevenson has the Peace and Justice Memorial. And there, there's represented over 3,000 people that were lynched on American soil. But there's way more than that because they weren't documented. And I was just even reading about um, Latino Americans that were lynched in New Mexico and California to the, t to the tune of th over 300 in one night, you know? And so um, we, have to rem we have to remember that. And then um, Mary Turner, who is in Valdosta, Georgia, this one really, um, I tell this story in the book, and it's, she was a wife and a mom, and she was born in 1885 um, during the period of Reconstruction, only seven years after uh, my um, 
my great-grandmother. Um, she and her unborn child were um, lynched in 1918 because she um, reported an injustice in the murder of her husband, Hayes Turner, who was falsely accused and lynched. And in her lynching, um, she was beaten, she was lynched, she was eight months pregnant, and her, her child was removed from her stomach and murdered. That's a part of our history, but that we don't learn. In Waco, Texas, we're in Texas. Um, in Waco, Texas, Jesse Washington, his lynching was so horrific that it formed, this was part of the catalyst that formed the NAACP. And so he was 17 years old. Um, he actually had some, um, some trauma, some disabilities, and he worked on a farm, and he was accused of murdering the, um, the farmer's wife. But there was really no evidence, and they feel like his, his admission to that was coerced by um, the, the people of the town. But the town actually, when he was in court, there was no mention of um, any time you hear a lynching, a lot of times it was like someone's accused of rape, okay, with no proof of the rape. You know, and so um, the town um, beat him, and it, they would use the the parts of their body as trophies and souvenirs. And the church participated in this. I mean, a lot of slave trade and lynchings would happen after church service, so that the people that were attending church, leading church, could attend these um, these community events. You see, God deals with Israel as a collective in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant of God, he deals with the church as a collective. So in the Old Testament, it's about Israel. And we see that as when we talked about limitations. But now it's about the capital C church, the body of Christ as a collective. We are collective. Although we are of Western culture thought, um, most of you of a European descent, you're more individualistic in your thinking. You're like, all this stuff that you're saying, Tasha, has nothing to do with me. This is something that happened 100 years ago. This is not my problem. If we are part of the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom of God, we don't operate by the world system. We are communal. God deals with the church. So these things are happening on our watch. We have to be a part of the solution. And so we see that we are connected, and it, what impacts one impacts the other. We belong to one another. Racism, racism is not just bad for the oppressor, for the oppressed, but also the oppressor. We have to acknowledge our systemic policies that has created the present history that we have today because we are connected we must lament. We must have deep sorrow. We must lament the Slave Trade Act. We must lament the Indian Removal Act enacted by President Johnson, Jackson on May the 28th, 1830, authorizing the president to grant unsettled lands west of the Mississippi in exchange for Indian lands within the existing state borders. And a few of the tribes went peacefully but most resisted the relocation policy, and we have him on our money. Dred Scott case, the Compromise of 1877, Rutherby Hayes, which brought racial terror to the South, and understanding that connection that although slavery, the institution of slavery ended, it wasn't about 
equality and equity. People of color in this country were still seen as inferior and narratives were created around that. And we still have that today. And so we have to understand that the undoing of these systems that took 100 years, thousands of years to build up will take just as long to deconstruct the 13th Amendment involved into slavery by another mass by through the name of mass incarceration. And so we'll create an amendment, but then we don't deconstruct the systemic issue that actually allowed people to be slaves, to become slaves. We always have a loophole in something. Um, the 14th Amendment granted all citizens equal protection under the law, but as we see that, um, that this was adopted in 1868, but as we see that, after that, we see Jim Crow laws, um, no voting, all these different things, and so what was the amendment for, you know? And so um, then we have Plessy versus Ferguson, which ushered in um, a lot of the Jim Crow laws that we had, you know, as it relates to separate schools, separate churches, colleges, even in death, image bearers could not be buried together. So even in death, we have separate cemeteries. We're going to have an awakening. And so if, you look at it, if you're, you're looking at me now and you say, Latasha, what are we lamenting today? Like all this stuff you're talking about, like that's in the past. But these things have evolved into similar injustices, injustices that have adapted. And it's just now a little more palatable for us to endure. Like we, we would never go along with slavery, but we'll go along with mass incarceration because not, it's not imp impacting our community. And so one of the things that we have to limit today is the maternal health crisis that impacts women of color. Too many black women are dying in pregnancy and childbirth. Black women who are experiencing um, are three to four times more likely to experience pregnancy-related death than white women. Um, no preventable, preventable um, maternal death, um, complications, um, um, black servant hospitals provide lower and quality maternity care. Um, black servant hospitals have a higher rate of maternal complications than other hospitals. They also perform worse on 12 of 15 birth outcomes. These are the things we, that's going on on our watch right now, but we say we care. Puerto Rico, there's an estimated 200 and 2,975 people who died as the result of the hurricane. 167 schools were closed. Up to 30,000 homes remained covered. But we're not even talking about Puerto Rico. And they, too, are American. They are a part of our country. And even when you read the history of that, it gives you an understanding and why this country looks down, because they were colonized. And so we have to understand that. Flint, Michigan. Flint once thrived as the home of the nation's largest General Motors plant. The city's economic decline began in the 1980s when GM downsized. Um, and so they, to, to save money, they um, shifted their water supply, and you have um, 
what we now have, the Flint water crisis, because it came from um, a the consumption of lead that was in the, the, the river that it was coming from, it impacts the heart, the kidneys, and nerves. And so you have several children that are having uh, impacts from that. And just the generational cause that this lead poisoning will cause in this area. Um, but mum's the word. And they still don't have clean water. We know that, right? They, they don't have clean water. Okay, and then the border crisis. Um, this, back here in April, I went, I visited to um, Oaxaca, Mexico. In Oaxaca, Mexico, um, I was just learning. I wanted to go myself and learn about what's happening at the border to be able to, to feel and to touch and to understand deeply what's happening and doing research to understand what's taking place. And so we went to Oaxaca, Mexico is just one of the areas to stop in places where a lot of the migrants are stopping to um, get food, to um, the Catholic church is really coming alongside to provide um, temporary shelter. And one of these shelters um, was a children's shelter. And these were children that were traveling alone. Um, I met a young 11-year-old girl that had a eight-day-old uh, eight eight baby. Nobody chooses that. A 14-year-old 14 14 young girl that was traveling with an eight-month-old baby. I met a young mom who, um, her two children and her husband, um, her daughter is, was 14, her son was 16, and they're traveling for safety because her son had become a target, her daughter had become a target, doing what any of us would have done to save our children. And the one thing she looked me in my, you know, and I felt, I felt really ashamed and guilty that I felt like I don't want to ask her any questions. I'm not deserving of any answers. She doesn't have to explain herself to me. Who am I? And... Um, so the only question I had for her was, what would you like for me to tell people in America? And she said, um, I want people in America to know that I am not evil, that I'm fleeing evil. And when you're up close and personal with that type of suffering and that type of pain, and even in the midst of what they were going through, these kids were laughing. They were giggling. They had built their own community amongst each other, amongst the suffering. In the midst of that, they still had hope. That 14-year-old still had hope that she would one day be reunited with her mom in California. Police brutality, we must lament. And here in Texas, we've had a lot of situations. We don't know any 13-year-old child, 12-year-old child that's been shot in three seconds with a toy gun. We don't know any white woman that had been called, someone had been called to do a well check that died within three seconds. This is a part of our history. The narratives that we've created produces this type of result. And until we own that, until we acknowledge that, we'll still be dealing with the same cycle over and over and over again. So the work of reconciliation 
It beckons us into conversations and relationships with people. It requires a surrendered heart. It requires humility. It requires listening, listening and lifting the voices of the marginalized. It requires a heart of empathy where we can sit in the pain of others, even if we've never experienced it. It is hard. It's uncomfortable. Reconciliation requires transformation, not only did, not, not, that only Jesus can do in our hearts. It requires dismantling of secular worldviews, unhealthy ideologies, partisanship, idols we have embraced. It calls us into the awkward, the painful, the tension, the resistance, all for the glory of God so that all may flourish. So in a moment, we're going to um, do a lament prayer, just taking all our heaviness from the summer, all the deconstructing work that you're doing, all the things that we're hearing daily, and we're going to lament this to our Father our God. So lament is a vital prayer for people of God because it enables us to petition God for help to deliver us from stress, suffering, and pain. Lament prayer is designed to persuade God to act on the sufferer's behalf. Lament means for us to mourn aloud. And sometimes when we don't know what to do, this is what we do. We need to lock arms with one another, and we need to mourn aloud. So I want us to take a stand now. Let's stand up. Let's take a deep breath. This is heavy. We've heard a lot of stuff over the summer. Let's take a moment. And those of you, if you can't stand with us, let's lock arms with those around us. Let's remember those. Not everybody can stand, so let's just lock arms. And we're going to just take a deep breath. Let's breathe in, let's breathe out, and let's mourn together. We acknowledge that we stood by when the dwellings of our neighbors were cast down, and we ignored the cries of the innocent. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we acknowledge we have not learned to do right. We do not seek restorative justice that benefits all. We have not defended the oppressed. We have not taken up the cause of the fatherless or pleaded the case of the widow. Instead, we have mocked and punished the poor with our partisanship and our apathy. Lord, have mercy. We lament that we stood by as systemic and institutionalized racism became founding pillars and structures in America and within the church. Lord, have mercy. We have allowed agendas of empire to become prominent within your church. We understand that the empire aims to take and oppress. We have replaced your kingdom with an empire mentality. Lord, have mercy. We have formed and developed church structures and denominations while excluding the voice of your global church due to racism and racial segregation. Lord, have mercy. We acknowledge the racial hierarchies and structures of privileges many have benefited from and many have been oppressed by. Lord, have mercy. We have ignored the cries of children because they were not our own. We have discounted the pain of mothers because they were not our own. We have turned a blind eye to the affliction of brown and black men and women because they were not our own. 
Lord, have mercy. We have replaced your supremacy with idolization of our nation and racial identity. Lord, have mercy. We have not required justice. We have not loved others well. And we have not walked in humility and in our brokenness. Lord, have mercy. We cry out to you, O oh, our God and our Redeemer, as the only one who can save us from ourselves. Show us our blind spots. Don't let us hide from you and our shame and guilt. Restore us to your perfect union that can be found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, show us how to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. Lord, have mercy. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, with deep sorrow, we lament. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the truth that transforms us. Father, we lament. In the powerful name of Jesus, let it be so. Amen.